Hello, Trevor. Hey, Jeff. Welcome back. Thanks, man. <laughs> I'm back too. <laughs> I guess we're both back. That's right. That's right. You you you've been on a dry spell. Yeah, yeah. I've I've, I've uh, my wife and I've been, as you well know, been uh, picking up the uh, the disc golf, and so she's been enthusiastic. I've been enthusiastic, and to uh, people in their mid fifties uh, who actually enjoy. Uh, gallivanting around the countryside, throwing pieces of plastic at at, uh, at metal chains on poles. Uh, I guess you just need to make the best of it while you can. Well, you know, you never know what winter's going to look like. And I mean, <laughs> I was hearing predictions that it's going to be potentially kind of a mild winter for us here. Um, and I think in, in, in your neck of the woods, too. But you never know. I mean, you know, by January, we could be two feet deep in snow. Well, yeah, that is true. We don't normally get too bad. Uh, usually it lasts for a little while and goes away. But I also know that uh, I think my wife is a little bit competitive. She enjoys sports. I've never been much of a sports person, except more individual stuff. So this is really kind of fit a good, uh, good spot, but uh, stay active while we can. Cause there's, you know, as I've, I've like, we went to a tournament uh, uh, and they had mixed couples and there's eight couples. I think the the next youngest, they're 15 years younger than we were, and everybody else was even younger than that. So yep. it's like, understandable. Yeah. And then look at their scores. Like, I, I don't, I've come to realize there's, I can improve, but I, I realize there's a barrier that this 50 uh, some year old body can actually uh, uh, cross. So just do the best of what I can. Well, and it is the the question would be, is it really about the sport or is it really about the exercise and getting out and spending time with your wife? Well, the, the main thing really is improving. And I think a lot of courses, the, the more simple courses, they have pars that are generally reasonable. And it's a good thing to try and aim at, you know. I see. It's really, to me, well, here's what's kind of interesting um, is the, because a lot of times you can make improvements, but it won't improve your score. So it's probably like a lot of things you need to pick things that you are improving on even if it doesn't show up in the score like are you are you making doing better your approaches are you getting putts further away are you you know those types of things so sure yeah absolutely so an increment of 20 foot on a drive uh, may not be a lot but still an increase of 20 feet and you know later on eventually it'll all add up but yeah yeah, cool. it is. It is definitely for, for anybody interested. That is definitely a. Uh, it's an easy sport to be involved in. That takes minimal amount of of money to to play. I mean, frisbees can't be all that expensive, right? Well, this is the this is the this is the dark thing about disc golf is that you can spend ten bucks for a, a reasonable disc. They run between ten and fifteen, sometimes up to twenty. Depends on the plastic, but they all have different characteristics. They come in different weights. They have different flight characteristics. Uh, so um, you can easily start finding yourself uh, like any other thing that only costs like 10 or 15 bucks or even 20 bucks. Uh, I get a couple here, try this one out, try a few here. I wonder what this would be like in a different plastic. I wonder if I just bought this at 10 grams uh, lower weight, if that would make an improvement. <laughs> I, you should really just buy the lightest one. And just tape pennies to the underside of it. You know, that's the other thing I thought about is, you know, you could also adhere weights and, you know, what sort of effects would it have to, uh, you know, if you start playing around with uh, the balance of it. Uh, yep. Yeah, it, it's really kind of interesting. The If you ever want to get interested in the whole physics, there's a lot of weird physics that goes on with these discs. I don't fully understand 
why one will be biased to the left, the other will be biased to the, to the right, just kind of based on where that parting line is in relation to the top. But it it does. It's like it's strange. But anyway, enough of that. People, this is not RPG disc throwing. <laughs> disc rambling. Disc rambling. Yeah. So yeah, and I think for for people maybe afraid I was. I don't know if anybody's afraid I was going to actually go dark or silent, silent. But it's just you could do. Not- you could do disc golf live plays where you just basically rig yourselves up and they just, you know, <laughs> here, can you hear you mutter and everything? You're yeah, like, ah, listen to me hit a tree. Track. Thwack. Watch me, uh, watch me uh, in, in real time, uh, walk through poison ivy and uh, have my legs all. <laughs> oh man, I was, uh, I, I, we, we cut, we cut four trees down on the north side of my house uh, this spring. And I'm finally, I, I let the wood age on the ground for a couple months in the height of summer. I didn't want to deal with it. And so I was clear, we were clearing it out and we have a, we have a small tractor and everything. And, and it's my job to roll logs into the tractor dump and everything. And, and I got, I got poison ivy. What the weird thing was, was I got it on my face. I, you know, I, was, I was bending over and it's in, and a poison ivy um, vine flicked up across my face. And I'm like, ah, I immediately went in, washed off my face um and everything and where does it show up it shows up on my arm now it's it's better now you can barely see that i had it but it, just before game hole con this was just all red and enraged and everything and stuff and it took about a month to go away it was it was actually quite nasty and it kept getting a little little like and they're not really blisters but just real little you know you've had poison ivy i'm sure oh yeah yeah M- multiple times this year yeah <laughs> So I'm, I'm I'm constantly amazed because I didn't really used to be affected by it, but this was this was different. And then I was fairly certain I hadn't got it on my arms, and I'd gotten it on my face. And my face was fine, but my arm is what, you know, and it gets into your circulatory system and it just pops out wherever. I did not know that. Yes. Oh yeah, it can go. Um, it can go septic. My my mother-in-law got it, and she looked like a mummy. Um, she was wrapped. Just everything was loosely wrapped. It was just all poison ivy everywhere for about six months so um yeah so i've had it bad in the past but and i also was very um adamant that i was going to wear shorts um and i spent a lot of time in the woods uh, unfortunately that's not where you're supposed to throw your discs but uh, (laughs) that's that's where they go yes and i realized you know i guess looking down i i I know what poison ivy looks like and i can also tell the leaves of three things kind of have that waxy look but there's yep. a certain point where you're like, it is what it is. And um, I'm just thankful it wasn't worse than it was. I mean, think of it as a metaphor for your games. Yes, the, yes. These are players and you're the you're the GM and they just go where they want to go, no matter how well you throw them. Yes. Sometimes you have beautiful mistakes. Sometimes you have the most beautiful throw and then it hits a tree 10 foot in front of you. Yep. And you're like, wow, if it only wasn't for that tree. Is that true? Who, who put that there? If I didn't put that ogre right there. I wouldn't have had a total party kill. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anywho, uh, I've got stuff stuff still going. I've, I've got um, got a Kickstarter. I should be the next Gary's Appendix. Uh, I think I'm going to Kickstarter here maybe in a couple of weeks. Sweet. That's number five, right? That is number, no, four. it's number four. Yeah, that's good. Congratulations. That'll yeah, I'm awesome. kind of excited. It's a sword and sorcery edition. So um we got some pretty fun articles. So 
That's great. So, so things are still happening, even though the podcast was the, the first one to, to give. But, um, you know, things come and go. You do what yeah. you do. It's it's uh, it's it's, you know, I'm sure that I'm supposed to be working on a winter house renovation and I'm beginning to ramp up for it. And so sometime like January, February, March. Now, when I'll you say a winter house, are you saying you're going to winter? I don't have a winter house. OK, I have a winter seasonal this is this winter. I will be renovating the house. Okay, and, and so, um, and and I'm gearing up for the for the work uh, as we as we move towards winter because it's all internal. I'm gutting a kit. I'm getting a kitchen and rebuilding it and and a bathroom. Whoa, oh, that's that's nothing. That sounds expensive. Uh, I've been working towards it for years. So, so I buy little. I, I buy bits. I kind of have an idea of where we're going and I, you know, we've already bought sinks and faucets and, and I get all of that stuff kind of purchased. That's building up to it is, is what that is. And you know, that does, if you've got space and you're a disciplined person and not just a uh, person that just collects stuff thinking they'll use it someday. Um, that is a smart way of doing it. Cause you can find faucets probably occasionally like, yeah, I want those faucets or, you know, well, yeah. And, and as a matter of fact, like, um, we right at the beginning of COVID, um, the very, very we have like a millionaire billionaire area of town in Cincinnati. It's called Indian Hills, and as COVID hit, um, a whole bunch of house renovations spiked in in Indian Hills, and they were tearing out kitchens. Now, th this is not a kitchen probably like you and I are used to. This is a kitchen that's like a it's like a it's like a two and a half thousand square foot kitchens that we're talking yeah. about here. Right. I mean, there were like there were just hundreds and hundreds of cabinets and everything and stuff. And so um, so uh, I, we and they were in great condition, dovetail uh, um, joinery, really high end um, slides, the best woods and everything. But they're tearing them out and they're putting in something better, something more expensive. And so each one of these cabinets is probably two to three thousand dollars a cabinet. We have two or three big reuse centers here. And um, and millionaires donate their cabinets so they can take it as a tax write-off instead of just throwing it in a dumpster. And so they would literally get like, you know, two-thirds of a kitchen that's in pristine condition. And that's enough kitchen for you and I for like two or three kitchens. You're right. And so uh, so we had a friend who was uh, had just purchased a house actually about a mile from us. And... Um, and one day she comes over really excited and she's like, check out these kitchen cabinets. And she knew we were thinking about renovating. And, and it turned out that there was enough kitchen cabinets that we could we could chip in together, buy them as a lot, and actually get both of our kitchens done. Um, and you're like, you know, that's how many sink cabinets there were, right? They had like five sink cabinets and, and stuff like this. It was crazy. I don't know why you need five sinks in a kitchen, but you might. And, um, and so, so we were able to get that. So like, I've had the, the brand new top of the line handmade cabinets in storage in the garage for like three, three years now. So, so well, it's, I'm trying to is, think it's a long-term plan. There, so there's a category that we can't comprehend of richness that we cannot comprehend. That's right. And this it, is it. If you would say, you know, to them, I have no, you know, if you were to meet, the person that owned the house, she said, I have no idea. Why would you need five, five sinks? Well, of course I need five sinks. Whenever we host parties, I need five sinks to keep the hors d'oeuvres going, uh, right. whatever going that this there's is a, going. There's a clam 
you know, uh, uh, you know, island with all the ice and and, and the yeah. muscles, clams are just open on it. You know, those things are reality for people that are beyond our means. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but it turns out that you too can have super really nice cabinets when the ultra rich and wealthy give theirs away. So. And they're they're immaculate. They they look they look better than something I could buy at a Home Depot or a Lowe's or something, right? They're and they're built to last. They'll never they'll never fall apart as long as I don't have a leaky roof. So, yes. Well, and it's also you got a story now because now you share cabinets with a friend of yours. That's right. Within a mile of us, right? Yeah. There's and a so, narrative now that's built into this. And the same thing is true. So, like um, Friday, I go to meet the local farmer who's just around the corner, actually between me and my friend. And um, and he cuts wood all winter. That's his hobby. He 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 plows and he reaps things and everything and harvests stuff all summer. And he tags trees he doesn't like that are in his way. And then all winter he cuts them down. And then he has a buddy with a sawmill, and they saw them. And then they sit in these barns in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, for years, years. And and you'll there'll be a stack of black walnut and nobody knows about it because he doesn't advertise. You just have to know him. Right. And so I'm going to go over there and look at some black walnut on Friday uh, and probably buy a whole bunch of black walnut to hand make the countertop. And so on at least part of the, the kitchen, I'll have black walnut countertops. Mm. So, yeah. So but but, you know, I can buy from him barn aged black walnut. As a matter of fact, the desk I'm sitting at right now is barn aged ash from my farmer um that cost me 70 cents a linear feet foot um or what 70 cents a board foot and um and you know it would have cost me 10 15 dollars a board foot from a kiln place so yeah if you got the time and the place and the connections and the space uh you can make it all work out and the carpentry tools and I have all the carpentry tools, so that's not a problem. So. Yeah, and some of that stuff, I mean, you know, it does take a, a bit of a knack, especially dealing with cabinets and such. But they're already built, though, so it's it's uh, probably not it's quite really so about bad. Yeah, it's about leveling. Yeah. And so, and, and leveling is just about shims and, you know, a really nice level. And I have plenty of shims and I have a level. So, um, so you know, once we get the floors in, and, or once I tear everything out and redo some plumbing and stuff and... And fix everything we'll, we'll, we'll get it going that's so what you doing with your so what are you going to do about your flooring for the kitchen well the kitchen so my house is a very extensive redo anyway um and so the kitchen has the original flooring in it that'll all get torn out i'll put a sub I, I will then cut the floor put shift the the lines a little bit because as my plumber put it when i started renovating the house you you don't rebuild a 50 year old body and then not rework their plumbing um, so you need to, you know, so I'm upgrading all the plumbing at the same time. And, um, so I'll, we'll lay in the new plumbing for where it's supposed to go. And then I will build what's called a, um, so, you know, I've lost the word. Um, <clears throat> you build little walls. That's how they are. They're little walls. Um, they're, they're called, uh, sisters, I think is what is, is how we refer to them here locally. And so you put in these little, basically two by fours that are all custom leveled, you know, with little shims and stuff um, and everything. And you build a subfloor that way. And then you lay plywood and, uh, and other material on top of it. So, hmm. 
so you know what the final height needs to be because I have just outside the, in the in in the dining room, the great room is right next to the kitchen, and I know what the height final height needs to be, and all I have to do is work back backwards with my dimensions. It's like I know a two by four is an inch and a half thick, and I know that the plywood is you know. 34, 36 of an inch or whatever it is. And and so you just do the math. Right. And you know, I've got to shim it to this height and then everything sits perfectly. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done that extensive. Sleepers. I'm trying to think. They're called right. sleepers. What'd you call, what's it? They're called sleepers. The little okay. trusses that you put underneath the floor. They're called sleepers. Sorry. Yeah. I, I just haven't done a lot of work, woodworking in a while. But the entire house, my entire house is on sleepers because this was originally uh, a chicken coop when I bought it. I didn't know that until about an hour after I signed the paperwork that the house was a chicken coop. In the 40s, 1940s, this was the chicken coop for the farm, for all the farmland around here. And in the 40s, they had a need, 30s and 40s, they had a need for itinerant labor. And so they took the chicken coop and converted it to itinerant labor housing. And as a matter of fact, I don't have it. I can't go grab it right now easily. But when we were renovating the house, we basically built, we scissor trust, we built walls and an extension and then scissor trust over the existing house, demolished the house while we were living in it, and then and then built the new parts and and married it all together. This is this is a 10-year pro project. It's been 10 years since I've been working. Right. It's still going on. It's still going on. This is the last bit though. The kitchen and the bathrooms are the last thing. I have less than 10 linear feet of outside wall that's original to the house i have replaced everything so little bit it's at a time as i move through rooms and everything i have replaced and upgraded the foundation and done everything so this is this is a good project um but yeah so we found this board on the wall and it was the original sketch that had like literally a box that says coop in it right and it's like we're going to add these rooms to it and and that was it. That was the that was that was the amount of planning that went into changing it to itinerant laborer housing. <laughs> it was a sketch on a wall uh, that they then plastered over. So when I tore the plaster down, I recovered the board. And actually, it's my plan to um, when I'm done to have that board framed because I have it I, ha I have it stored away somewhere to have it framed nicely with a little plaque at the bottom that lists all the people that helped me renovate the house so you'll come in and there'll be a picture of the house finished and then and then the board and then you know thank you and everything yeah it would be interesting to know the stories of the people that were the people that lived in this coop yeah originally. yeah it's a crazy it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a crazy history to a house that's only like less than 100 years old and right, so, it's not the kind of history you think of the house history just being of just individual families owning a house. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. I built this house. Me and me and Ma Kettle, you know, and we had our kids and whatever. But it's like, no, it's it's much more than that. Yeah, yeah. But we have rambled way off topic. <laughs> My original point was was that like you, there 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 are moments when you have when you have dirt, you know, dearths of, uh, of rambling yes. and you're focused on something else. So I totally understand. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it is. And I think it is a healthy thing to, uh, I mean, I, I, I think for a lot of us who can, uh, hyper-focus on things it's probably best to occasionally aim that, that 10 gigawatt laser at something else rather than just burning a hole in the same thing all the time. So, yeah. 
And that, yeah. well, and I think the thing too, it's like, to me, there is inspiration, maybe not directly always, but it's kind of like now you, you're telling me about this. Do you ever read the comics, uh, Kings in Disguise? No, I've never even heard of them. So Kings in Disguise came out in the eighties and it was about, um, the, it was during the twenties, the mother died, the father left to go get work. And these two boys went out to go find their father. Okay. And it, it wasn't, I mean, it's, it's pretty tough. I mean, some of the stuff was good. Some of the stuff was bad. And one guy thought he was a King of Spain and I think he got away. He had tuberculosis and he would, they would boil and he got real bad. Was it, um, was it, was it thistle or something? They would boil. It would like, it's like a narcotic. It would, it would help him with his cough, but it ended up just messing with his mind. So it was kind of a, <laughs> this is a comic. Okay. Yeah, kings in disguise. So anyway, but anyway, it just it, it just like you, you know, looking at that, it's like, well, there's a bunch of stories there with with that, like whatever that is, um, yep. you know. I don't know. So, and same thing with whatever you're doing. It's 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 kind of like with uh, E. B. White. He um, he his whole idea with being a writer is that you're really. He was asked um, during World War One. You know, for what you know, you did. Um, he was known for being a writer, um, but I think he said that he put farmer because uh, he had a small farm he wrote from. But he's like, you're not really a writer. You 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 experience other things, and those things come out in your writing. Like it's, it's, and I think sometimes too, it's our experiences that we see that we people we come in contact with, books we read, movies we see, um, walks in the woods. Uh, those are things that come out in, I think, the products that we produce. Oh, I agree. I agree. Look at, uh, you know, Nick Barron did that product, uh, Tragedy at Hillwood Rise or whatever it was. And that is, you know, he said long and uh, numerous times, he's like, that came about from a walk through a, through a, uh, like a city park, right? Yeah. He was going through this wooded area of a park. And, uh, and, and whenever he needed inspiration for that product, he would go back out to that and he would walk back through there and check it out with his dog. Right? <laughs> go back to the well. Go back to the well, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, you do. And, and you know, I mean, all, all of our products are probably products of, I mean, they're imaginative, but they're products of things that we have been exposed to, whether we realize it or not at some level. So it is, it is impossible to divorce create. Yeah. The things that we think are creative from, from things that we've, you know, it's like musicians, like, are yeah. they really coming up with anything new? Probably not. Well, you know, Orson Scott Card wrote a, um, he wrote a short story about that, actually, where where um, this person had been, you know, it starts out and it's like this person has always been alone and they're administered by robots and they're in this dense uh, forest and they they can't leave the forest, but there are musical instruments there and they're 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 taught, you know, basically they're given instruction on how to play by the robots, but they're but they're never allowed to listen to man-made music, right? And so and then one one you know and they had handlers who would come and deal with them. And the handlers were always mute and they never, they never talked to them or anything and stuff. And the whole thing was, was that, was that, you know, this society, what, whatever human society this was, some, something in the future or something was attempting to create uh, musical geniuses that were independent of the previous musical. They were non-influenced. Right. You know, so this person had never heard Beethoven. They had never heard Bach. They had never heard Mozart. And, um, and as a matter of fact, the the thread of the story is is that is that a musician comes and plays Mozart or something in the woods and influences this person. So when they begin to compose, 
and they pick up little pieces of Mozart, they know that this person has been damaged, right? That they have, they have they're they're basically no longer pure. They're they're no longer a pure uh, of themselves. They've been they've been influenced by the outside world, and they hunt down the other person and do mean things to them. But um, you know, so it, but it was an interesting idea, you know, that that you really can't, you know, and but it was it was that influence that allowed that person to create more, right? Right. To create better, and and that's not far off of what uh, uh we, you know when we did the very first tales from the smoking worm we wrote an essay or i wrote an essay in the back uh called on the shoulder of giants and um and and i was like you know this is this is what that you know talking about what that phrase meant and and everything through the through the centuries and stuff and the idea that you know humanity is an accumulation culture is an accumulation of things um and it's an accumulation a historical accumulation of stuff and and sometimes its origin is surprising yeah I, I was listening to uh, there's an absolutely phenomenal podcast about um about dolly pardon put out by uh who put it out it's like a multi-series and then they were talking about country music and the banjo and then there's a gal I forget her name but part of the carolina chocolate drops talking about how it was an african instrument but then she started tracing it back and it really goes back way further than that it's like a middle eastern and talking about different vocalizations and things they're like the calling or whatever it actually goes back to like a middle eastern chant and yeah. and she talked about how people on ships uh traveling to wherever uh like say coming to from to the u.s different nationalities would come be on a ship for however long a month or six weeks or whatever it is <laughs> play music together sometimes even swap instruments yeah but this sort of thing has been going on, you know, for thousands of years. And we think that, you know, you know, Led Zeppelin comes out doing something new. Well, it's just derivative of the blues, which is derivative of this, which is derivative of that. And, you know, next thing you're going back to, you know, people around a campfire, you know, 5,000 years ago, plucking away on a string. You first yeah. invented it. It's like, it's like, yeah. Yeah. So, so those are, yeah. You know, those, I think, I think what we do in life influences what we write. I, I I completely agree with that. So certainly influences how I think. Yeah, it's 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 impossible to to I mean try and think anything's original, and that's why I think sometimes um, I think the best thing we can do is is produce something that's interesting. That's our take of something that's already probably a pastiche. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Just have fun with what you do, and if people like it, they'll buy it, and if they don't. Well, it's still out there. You never know. Maybe it just hasn't found its audience. Well, you know that's that's another thing. Uh, before we do talk about smoking worm, there was a there was a rant I was kind of wanting to do. Not really a rant, but okay. I couldn't find the quote. There's a there's a fellow on one of the forums who produced who produces a lot of stuff on uh, on uh, drive through. I won't okay. say the system name um, or who the person is. But he was complaining that his stuff wasn't getting the same recognition as other people. And he was also complaining that he puts out a lot of stuff, but people aren't talking about his stuff. And he was lamenting the fact that while these other people who produce the same sort of content get noticed and he doesn't. And uh, But the same people who he was saying this about, they also were saying very positive things about his stuff. 
And this was the second time I've seen this person do a rant um, hmm. about that. And I started thinking about like, and I never reached out to the guy, but while I was thinking like, you know, talking about, you're talking about recognition or maybe you don't. It's like, I started thinking like, I think before we do anything in a creative space, you need to figure out one is like, why are we doing this? Yes. <laughs> like you really need to figure that out quick. Why What's, are you doing this? What what is 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 it a deep? Does it fill a deep burning need in your soul, or is it for making money? And those two don't have to be separate. It, you know, I I break it down when I talk to when I talk to new creators on the Scrivenery, um, which is the which is the little Twitch show that I do with Ed Stanick on the Goodman Games channel, and it's all about writing. You know, getting into and and learning about how to write third party products and independent publishing and stuff right and we, and we always break it down into three categories you're either a profit person you're either a not profit person or you're a passion person and the truth is is all of those things can be interlaced in the same product um, oh wait a second you gotta pick two of the three you can't have no, all three well no no, no. but but or they can be for instance you look at smoking worm um some people come and ask me to write if they can write an article and they're on they're a passion product that's a passion project for them right Whereas I may write things because I'm like, oh, this fills a void in the existing stuff that I know needs to be filled. It may not be something that I'm particularly wanting to use in my own game, um, but I, I just want to get it out there because I have an idea on how it might be executed well. And so that's probably a profit thing. And then sometimes I write things and I work on projects and I'm like, I just don't want to lose my shirt on this, you know, and and. <laughs> Please, so, Lord, don't make me let me lose my shirt on this. Don't, don't, I don't want. I don't want to have to explain to my wife why it was why it is that we have to mortgage the house again. Right? Um, you know, it's it. You know, but and, and those things can all be in the same product, depending on the type of product, right? Because my product is a whole bunch of different articles. You know, many all right. of us have everybody the, on the for team, individuals, but for you as a person producing it, yes. You it's need one, to know why you're in this. I and I absolutely know why I'm doing it. Yes. <laughs> so. And I think if, if anybody doing trying to strike out, they need to not lie to themselves. They can't say, I'm in it for this, but in the end, you're like, well, I'm not really in it for I'm just doing it because I love it. But if you are going to complain because you're not getting the fanfare that your peers are, then you need to reevaluate. Well, maybe I do want the fanfare. You, you really just need to understand. Yeah. And, and, and who, I don't know, I, I didn't see the rant that you did. Um, my feeling is, is that I think everybody feels like that person feels at some point. Right. I think oh, everybody yeah. looks at their peers and, and we have a group of peers and you interview a lot of them on your show. Right. We all look at them and we're like, Oh, that, that guy or that girl, they're just doing way better than I am. And, and then you look at the product and maybe you go, well, that's not any better than my product. Yeah. Right. And um, $25,000 Kickstarter. And, boom, and whereas, out of the sky. <laughs> right. Whereas I'm like, oh, I'm scratching it two or three or 4,000. Right. And so, uh, you know, this, I think it comes back to that thing of, you know, you got to walk a mile in someone's shoes before you understand what's going on. And, and, and I kind of look at it and say, you know, I mean, I have those feelings. I understand where those feelings come from. And, and, and I try and, I try and mitigate those feelings by being kind to other people and understanding that I don't know the whole story. And it's maybe we should just celebrate that we're putting things out there. And, yes. and you know, 
I had I had a I had a struggle with with a with a creative person very early on in my in this process that I've been doing smoking room now for four years, and um, and I had a talk with Joseph Goodman about it. You know, I was I was all worked up and angry, and this person really made me very unhappy. And um, and Joseph said, you know, he's like he's like. I find that karma kind of comes around and that you will get your due as long as you just treat that person well and cut strings. Right. He's like, if it, if it's not a good relationship, treat them how you would want to be treated and move on. And, and he's like, it'll come back to, it'll come back to reward you at some point. And I'm not saying it's going to be tomorrow is what he told me. He's like, but you know, it'll, at some point it'll come back to you. And, and I thought about that and I was like, you know, he's right. I just need to let go. I need to, I need to, jettison those negative feelings because the only person they hurt is me right and 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 uh, and i've been a much happier publisher since <laughs> so you know but it's good to have a bad experience under your belt right oh i uh, agree and i think you're right is that the bad experiences and i think also recognize you know I think there's a lot of us that have not achieved what we really want to achieve. Yet. That's right. And so, so if you're in that place where you're having that rant before you hit the send button, ask yourself, why the hell did I just write this? And why didn't I just put it in a journal that I could just close and put in the desk drawer? And then when I die, you know, it'll go to some of my gaming friends and you'll be like, oh my God, he hated all of us throughout the years, right? But at least you'll be dead and you won't have to deal with the fallout right then and there because it can crash and burn you pretty quick. Um, and, and he is a well-loved individual in that community. Um, yeah. And and the people around him try to be supportive, but still I'm like you, I don't, I normally don't, but maybe it's who we are. Um, I tend to not broadcast my emotions in a big way to others in a public forum. In a public forum, yeah. I, <laughs> You know, I just I, a little a little bit a little bit of common courtesy goes a long way. <laughs> the other yeah. thing I was thinking too is about this is what what does you didn't have in your mind like what does winning look like? Yes. And I and going back to the disc golf thing, uh, you know, it's like you could be I could be playing and my improvement as a fifty-six uh, year old man is going to be not, I'm not going to be able to compete against a 24 year old. There's no way. Absolutely no way. I mean, not without a whole bunch of drugs. Not unless I drug him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the drugs go either yeah. way. But sure. Yeah. But the thing is, is I, I can't, I can't, my, my definition of winning can't be, I, I can, I can compete with a 25 year old. Like that, yeah. that is unrealistic. Right. But I got to find things. What does it mean for winning? Because the thing is, there are things I can win at. And it and it has and they just have to be defined. So I, in my mind, have to structure what winning looks like in publishing or writing or whatever it is I'm doing, and then look for those things and celebrate when I achieve those more modest uh, milestones. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 just be honest with yourself. You know, if and if that's a goal, right? You want fame and prestige and. You want to hang out with all the, all the cool kids, then um, 
then that's that's a goal. And okay, that's a goal. You know, that's I don't I don't know that that's any less reasonable than I want to own a Ferrari, right? Or any less reasonable than I want to have a fifty thousand dollar Kickstarter. Personally, you know, the level of Kickstarter I Kickstarters I have are about what I can handle uh, at the volume that I handle them. And so maybe with some more experience, I can handle a bigger one. Um, but I think there's, there's sometimes a lot of downsides to something that explodes out of your control. Um, oh, yeah. And and then suddenly you're like, wow, this is going to, then you have to deliver the bad news, right? Your family <laughs> or whoever else, which is, I am now going to have to change what we're doing because, um, you know, if I don't spend the money fast, I have to pay taxes on it. Or if I, oh, yes, pallets and pallets and pallets of paper. Right. right? It's not affecting me this time, but I was talking to, uh, because I use uh, World Game Design, Zach Goins is the main guy I work with for for Kickstarters. I told him I want to do Gary's Appendix. I said, but I want to, I want to both, I want, because it's two weeks after Kickstarter ends, you get paid. I'd rather have those, those revenues come in before the end of the year. Yeah. And and then also order my books before the end of the year. Yeah. So then I'm going to be done. (laughs) So then I need to work backwards. (laughs) Okay. But you need to understand what you're doing and what's winning and, and not messing yourself up. But I think the other thing you mentioned too, I was thinking is kind of like what you're saying is I would say to this fellow who's complaining, but also to myself, you know, even to everyone out there, what are you doing besides writing or publishing to make you successful? By successful, I mean, whatever you constitute as winning. Yeah. Because you can't just write and print a book and expect success. No. And especially if the book is in some way different right and especially if it if it breaks norm um there's a there is a form factor let me give you a good example of this for for role-playing games there's a form factor for an adventure should look like and there's a couple variants on that form factor but they're basically the same right there's a description there's some notes to the judge there's some monsters or, or hazards or puzzles or traps or something there's a reason for that room to exist. It might be tied in what we call an ecology right. um, to steal a word from biology. Um, and, and all of that needs to be organized in a very systematic way. And a lot of that nomenclature goes all the way back to things like G1 or, uh, you know, the palace of the vampire queen and things like that. Right. It, it is literally unchanged since the 70s it was established and its form and and there's been some some tweaking but but um yeah you you know if you're just producing another one of those it's hard to stand out from the crowd but at the same time if you're producing something different it's hard to get recognized right explained it's something like steve jobs talked about the fact um he's he's like people don't know what it is that they want and the reason they don't know what they want is because they can't conceive of it yet because it doesn't exist. And if it, if they could conceive of it, it would already exist and they wouldn't want it. Right. Right. You, you know, and he, I think he was talking about um, the iPhone and the iPad and things like this and, and everything. He's like, he's like, we have to, someone has to conceive of it. There is a de novo building. And as we mentioned, nothing's really de novo. I mean, frankly, iPhones 
and and Apple watches and everything look like they're out of the Jetsons from the 50s for a reason, <clears throat> right? And, you know, flip phones look like they're out of Star Trek for a reason. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I agree. It's, um, you know. So I was thinking too, it's like, if this fellow's, if, if this fellow's idea of winning was to have people like talk about his products and, and I think it was just, I don't think it was just buying, but at least get there. I was thinking, well, maybe he should be doing things like uh, maybe he should be running a YouTube live plays using, you know, things like that. Like you, you people can't... can find him. Huh? So people can find him. Yeah. Instead of instead of being not well known, but one day you're traveling through Venice and you walk into a bookstore and there's this little English zine that has somehow made its way and it's shoved in between two other books and it falls out as you pick up the other book because you're looking at it. And then you're like, wow, what a treasure. It's a shame this guy didn't produce much because I didn't know he existed. But this is just gold, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and and those people exist, by the way, you know, in role playing games and in publishing from the 60s and or for the 70s and 80s, those types of products are out there. You just have to go look for them and they're rare and they're expensive um, or they're unknown. And um, and so, yeah. Yeah, you could be that, too. And yeah, that's a way of winning. Right. Long yeah. So after I... you produced it, it becomes sought after. And I think but the thing is, is you you can't it's not a, a pastor friend of mine who came to a town um and started a church and it wasn't going well his dad was helping him wasn't going well wasn't going well and then he was complaining to his dad um his dad said well nobody asked you to come here and uh nobody nobody's asked nobody asked you to write uh, tales of the, of the smoking worm nobody's told me to write fan of the fly nobody's said we need you there's no group of people that demanded this uh, we're out there just doing it, um, yeah. you know? And so there's a point where you get enough people and then people do demand it, but starting out, there's nobody asking for it. And you need to realize that it's that, and that's where I've kind of felt his, this person's, um, this person's uh, angst, I kind of felt a little bit of because I produce product for a segment that I thought was underserved and I thought would actually be more supportive and would be more hubbub about and absolutely not the case. Yeah. But I also had to ask, tell myself, they didn't ask me to write this. That's right. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but in the end, that doesn't mean you don't write it. it no, just it wasn't as well. It, you know, it didn't, it didn't, do what you really wanted it to do, which was, you know, maybe make a lot of money or something. Maybe but the thing is, fun. I expected to walk into town like a prophet and have everybody just welcome me like a, like a savior. Oh, where have you been, Jeff? We've been looking for something like this for, for decades. So thank you, Jeff, for writing this. I, I was kind of expecting that without actually engaging in the community. So I also had to realize I just walked into some, to a, to a place. I didn't know anybody. And now it's like I've got a product and then I expect people to just say, yeah, Jeff, thank you very much. We're just so happy you did this. We can't wait to buy more of your product. That's that's pretty unrealistic on my part, but I, I did kind of think that way. Yeah. Well, without even thinking <laughs> yeah. about what you were really, you know, what it was, what it was, what was really going on, right? 
Yeah. So, I mean, realistically, if I, if my idea of winning was to be more successful in that endeavor, I should have been engaging more heavily in that community long before I started putting out product. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd probably have been more successful. Yeah. But I mean, the, the alternative that is, is, is you engage with the, with the community now and not really, I think a different community just came to me. I think some of that community came, but as far as the Facebook group, nah, nobody. Sure. That's okay. It's, it's okay. okay. The other thing I was thinking too is ask yourself, what are other people doing? So this person was complaining. He wasn't successful, but what he's doing is not the same level of production values, product types, marketing that these other people are doing. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes if it's not working, you need to look around because it's like other people are successful. Why are they successful? Yep. Yep. Sometimes it's uh sometimes it is a flash in the pan. Sometimes it is just plain good old luck, which is really just the law of numbers. Um, everybody gets a little lucky now and then. Um and and if, for people who use, you know, chance cubes um to determine the success and outcome of things we should all understand that chance cubes yeah you know dice and star mm-hmm. wars are called chance oh cubes. oh right i see what you're saying as george <laughs> lucas i guess couldn't say dice just the dice no they're chance cubes right so uh, um but yeah yeah i mean and and sometimes it it's well earned well and sometimes it, it grows on people sometimes <laughs> that's just that's a thing you know well, like Hamilton, uh, I think I think I'm going to go on a limb. Not that I've watched very many musicals, but I think that's probably one of the greatest feats of music put out in the last decade. It was the the whole uh, Hamilton um, Broadway play? Musical. I totally enjoyed it when I went and saw it. I, I I never saw it live, but I I watched it on TV and I listened to the soundtrack. And I think musically is probably one of the most one of the greatest musical events. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I I think he felt very hungry. You know, those felt like, like, like songs that were like destined to be what they were. You know, and I think to me the the story was more than what I thought it would be. It is it was way different than I thought it would be. But I think, but when he came out with that, I think he went to the Obamas, the White House, and did a portion of it. Yeah, and 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 I think Michelle, like what you know, he told us, telling you know Michelle Obama like what this is about, and. You know, it's founding fathers, but they're actually, you know, people of color. <laughs> she looked at it and said, good luck with that. Yeah. And then I think it went for a year and it didn't do very well for like a year. And then it caught on fire. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, and, and so, so part of what we're doing when we make things is refining, 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 trying new things. Some things win, some things don't or fail, succeed. You know, I think you learn really well from your failures. Um, as a matter of fact, I think I think your failures are probably the most important thing that you that you have. Um, and so, and and you know, you build on it. Yeah, I don't know. What well, to say. I think that's just it. Right? At that point of failure, because because I think you know, uh, maybe not you know, just adjunct failure, but we have kickstarters that don't perform like we would like. I'm pretty sure that if you ask the creator, honestly, every single one of them would say that Kickstarter did not perform like I really wanted it to. Right. I I don't, I don't think that's not a, I think, I think that's a, 
that's like a mild that, that's kind of like an understatement right yes uh, I, i've never met somebody who would be like well i would have turned down the extra ten thousand dollars <laughs> you know i would have i would have just capped it at that level we're good um but, yeah but, but no like, you're right but zach says you know with kickstarters we have a funding level and then we got a number we're really hoping for <laughs> yes and i and i agree with him right and um and there's a little bit of dishonesty there because they want you to hit a they want you to hit that minimum they want you to set a goal but you need to set that goal low because you really there's an algorithm that drives it and it's the percentage of funding that drives things and so then you see people putting out ridiculously low goals they're like there's no way you could ever publish that with that much money that little amount of money so clearly that's not a realistic goal you're just trying to make take advantage of the algorithms and heck why not right <laughs> someone's gonna let a computer decide how things get shown on a website i might as well take advantage of it um i'm i have a crash and burn philosophy with my goals um i've already paid for it before i go to kickstarter um that's the minimum i will actually go to kickstarter actually fulfill uh, but if it, it's at that level, I'll never, ever do that project again. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> well, like, um, I did, um, I did character booklets, these little DCC character yeah. booklets. And it didn't, you know, I only had 80 backers, but, you know, in the end I looked at it, it was like, that was a pretty successful product, uh, you know, Kickstarter, because it didn't do as much money as I thought it would do. I thought it would catch on a little better. It didn't. Um, I'd done some advertising and I had certainly sent out examples of this stuff in advance. And that had kind of bombed on me because people hadn't used them. They, they, they'd just been too busy. It was COVID and they were too busy dealing with the reality and stuff. And, uh, but I still had 80 backers and they, they love their products. And, and you know, what it happens is now I have a big stack of character booklets for myself, which is, I really built it for me, right? Because I'm the one that decided when all those pages and how they were going to work together and stuff. And so now when I play my weekly game on Saturdays, I have a character booklet for my, for, for my characters, or when my players can't find something on their character sheets, I chide them that they haven't used their booklet correctly. And <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, I, those things exist for a reason and, and it was a good exercise and I don't begrudge the time or the effort and, you know, it paid for a couple thousand books. Oh, no, that's not that at all. I look at more as I want to do a thing and if there is at least a certain amount of uh, people interested, I will continue to do that sort of thing. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, the problem I have is that I'm always buying new equipment. And so, and I buy it out of my Kickstarter funds. And so, you know, I'm always balancing what the, what, what sits in the bank account and, and making sure, you know, it's always like, Oh, can I, can I get this cast iron vintage thing that I could probably use one day? Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, so that's, that's a, that's something that you should, uh, you know, you should maybe not get involved with as much, but, but <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure Jeff that I, that I've hit the limit limit. Um, it's uh, as to what I can store and what I can safely use without having a dedicated building for it. So, um, so that's, that's it. <laughs> I think I bought everything I need to buy. Well, it looks like there's some room in that room you're at right now. So I think you well, th probably... this, this is my reading room. And, and so, although my, 
my daughter's couch is sitting in here right now because she couldn't take it with her when she moved. So there's supposed to be a bookshelf behind me, but it, it, it's waiting to be built. Uh, luckily, I hadn't started it when she moved home suddenly and needed space for her couch because this was the only room we could put it in. Hmm. Um, yeah, so there's, there's, there's always room. You know, I can always, I can always find space. This, you know, I, I, when I do, when I do Zoom meetings, interviews, and stuff, I do it here. This is my art desk, and so what you don't see is all the art supplies. And this is the desk that I do product photography at. And, um, you know, I've got big weights here. These little oh yeah, and you can do desks. ironing while you're at it too. That's right. I can do my ironing. I've been, I've been rehabilitating these and painting them because they weigh like ten pounds each, and so. When I'm hand gluing stuff, I can put the weights on top. I got handles on, but um, so this is where I do all of that. And and you know what? They're cooler looking than a than a paper wrapped brick. Although this is cheaper, so it was fifty eight cents. <laughs> I'm just amazed you can. So I find amazing. I can't I can't keep uh, numbers and such in my head, uh, and to remember fifty eight cents for a brick as. Uh, Pretty I, I don't know why, but it's the thing that sticks in my head. I can remember what I paid for just about everything, right? <laughs> and so, um, yeah. yeah. So maybe that's, maybe that's your way of indexing uh, inflation is how much are bricks? <laughs> how much are bricks this year? Oh, <laughs> two cents now. Now I'm getting we're getting expensive. So yeah. yeah. No, we were talking about your Kickstarter because you got a Kickstarter going. I do have a Kickstarter going right now. Right it's, now. It's for Tales from the Smoking Worm number nine, um, which may seem odd to some people because um, I have yet to ship seven, which I have here in my hands, and eight, which I literally delivered to Kickstarter backers. Actually, at the time of this recording, if it hasn't gone to you yet, it will go to you in the next couple of hours because Brian, who is my my partner on uploading things to drive through, um, he is in the process of uploading things right now. And actually, just as we went live, he mentioned that he that I needed to send him one file. And so as soon as we get off, I'll send it. And then it's going to go out. And all my backers will have issue eight in, in PDF. And it's at the printers. And so I should have it back, uh, I think, by the end of November. We'll see. Um, you know, I can never tell how backed up a printer is when, when my product actually gets there to him. So, and, um, but yeah. So I've got, so I'm, but so seven and eight are about to go out to backers. That's another Kickstarter that I'm finishing right now. Everything's almost done. And then um, and then number nine is the current Kickstarter and Tales from the Smoking Room. That's that's Tales from the Smoking Room 9 and Smoking Room Monograph 2.1. So that's volume two, number one is uh, is on that Kickstarter as well. And that is an adventure. Um, uh, it is called Krampus Comes to Kos Boterham. And uh, it, it is it is a uh, an open open design style game like more like a sandbox almost where you have something you know going on but players can go in any direction to solve to, to finish it um and everything and obviously because it's camp krampus comes to cost boterham you're in cost boterham and krampus is going to show up uh -huh, okay um there's there's no hiding in that title um and everything but um but it's really cool because i'm reuniting with uh john cobb because matter of fact the very first um, uh, Smoking Worm monograph featured art by John Cobb. Here's a couple of his pieces. Oh, beautiful. Troll. Uh, my favorite one is, where's he at? Actually, this guy's pretty cool too. Look at that wicked blade on him. 
It is. These are all trolls. Um, yeah. There is the prophetess, I think, the witch. I don't know, especially think of Elric in a way. I don't know why. Well, as a matter of fact, he drew Elric for White Wolf. And so the White Wolf covers of the of the uh, collected Elric of Melna and Benet and, uh, and everything were drawn by uh, John Cobb. Oh, so he's an artist out of the out of the out of the nineties. He was a big white wolf artist in the nineties, and um, then fell out of doing products for people. And um, then I discovered that he was in Louisville, and we started talking. Louisville's about an hour and a half south of me, and uh, and he's since moved to Cincinnati. So uh, so now he's here, and and it's easy to get a hold of him. Well, at least maybe it's easier to get a hold of him. And so he's agreed. To come back for uh, for volume two number one for Krampus comes to Kostboderham and he will be doing the same type of art, same style of art and everything um, uh, for that for the adversary cards. So yeah, so this is this is a it's an adventure uh, um, smoking room monograph two point one, but monographs I design them as a as a product line to focus in on something and really explore it in depth in a metaphorical way. Right. And so it's not always in a me mechanistic like I'm writing in depth about this topic. Right. Sometimes it's design and layout. And as a matter of fact, what you see through the previous Kickstarter uh, smoking worm monograph. So here's here's the first one uh, for whom the bell trolls, which is the one that John Cobb worked with me. And then here's the second one. This is um, uh, the hangman's garden written by Dieter Zimmerman. The first one was written by Jose Luis Cardosa. You'll notice I haven't written any of these. That's not my goal in these uh, for the for the first couple that I've done. It's um, I am not the writer. I am the person who is. I'm, I'm, it's more experience in production design and uh, design and layout and trying to solve problems. That's the monograph part. I'm trying to solve problems and execute them um, to solve problems to create a more elegant design and layout plan for game masters and players. That's the focus of that product. Um, it's got a great adventure, don't get me wrong, and the product will be nice when it's done, but that's because that's what I'm investigating. So by um, tying Tales of the Smoking Worm, so you're, you are, you are um, at least your title ties it to it. Yeah. Oh, not only or, that, but, it, but the, there is a repetitious piece of art. If you look, there's a little itty bitty smoking worm. Sure enough, right? And he goes up and down in, in a in a vertical banner. That that and, and so this is designed. So you have to remember, I'm an academic. I came from academia. I love academic things. I spend lots of time thinking about books. Um, and one of my favorite form of nonfiction writing is the monograph. Right. And so a monograph is something that really was in its heyday in the 1920s, 30s and 40s into the 50s and 60s. It's kind of gone out of vogue in everything but zoology for the most part. Um, and so it's it's where one author does this serious deep dive as deep as you can get into the weeds and really explore something as well as they can. And so that's what we're trying to do in terms of that's my goal with a smoking worm monograph is a deep dive into design and layout to produce the better product. Uh, now the better product has to have good bones, right? And so I, I find an, I work with an author who is producing a really good story 
but it also needs other things. It needs flesh on those bones and stuff like that to carry that metaphor forward. And so it, in a sense, it's separate. I was kind of curious because you know, I've kind of thought, you know, with the, you, you've got a brand with the smoking worm. I do. And, and, so you're, the but, and you're putting this under the umbrella. Of the smoking worm. Does it create confusion as far as what that is in relation to the other? Well, I don't think it creates confusion in terms of Tales of the Smoking Worm, which is clearly kind of an anthology dragon-esque type of product, right? And so if you if you look at it, there's a menu on the back. This is issue six. There's a menu on the back, and it's got lots of different topics, and they're all over the place, right? And so, um, so I think Tales of the Smoking Worm, by the time we came up with the monograph idea, which started with issue four, and, and it was kind of sparse for the first year or two. It was, I'm going to do one, and okay, now I've got another one. I've got a third one that I'm doing right now, this volume two, number one. And then um, there'll be one in early January, uh, February timeframe. I've got another one that's coming out with the next Smoking Worm. They kind of come hand in hand. I think of them as a paired thing um, sometimes, especially this one, because issue nine of Tales from the Smoking Worm is seasonally themed. It's not just Christmas. But it's seasonally themed um, to end of the year celebrations and festivals and stuff. And so it has Krampus as a patron. It has a whole article on the instruments of Krampus, right? The weapons and stuff that Krampus uses. Um, it has um, it has uh, something we call patron missions, which are sh seven little short missions that you can randomly roll and assign to players as they tap into Krampus's power if they're using Krampus as their patron. And it's a you know that's that relationship is supposed to be a quid pro quo, and so we're providing lots of little pro quos, right? Right. <laughs> so that the judge can say, "Hey, I need you to do this little mission." Krampus is like, uh, "I've given you a whole bunch of power. Now you need to do something back." And um, and so so Krampus kind of grew and outsized the book, um, and and we had a whole bunch of other articles that were just in the end too big. They're going to get pushed to another issue next year. So um, you know, I I write these main articles or I invite people to write these main articles and they just develop kind of organically. And, and one of the things that I have to do to keep everything working, I think when you're building a book like that is you need to understand your form factor really well, right? So our form factor is very specific. It's five inches by eight inches. Um, and I, and I need, and I know we have, we have a style that goes throughout it in terms of the fonts we use, and everything. And I know what the word count on a page is based on those fonts. And so I have Excel spreadsheets where I am constantly moving articles around to get to the optimal um, word count per issue. So we've got eight issues under our belt oh, now. I see. Right. And I'm constantly thinking, well, which was my favorite issue? Not necessarily in terms of content, but in terms of layout and visual appeal and a balance between the cool visuals and the cool writing and stuff like this, which one was really well balanced. And, and if you ask people, they all have different opinions, but I'm the one that writes it so and produces it. So it's my opinion that matters at the end of the day. And I have kind of hit in on a, there's, there's a narrow window of about 2000 words, which is where I'm trying to hit in a given issue. And then once I go over that, it's between 14 and 16,000 words. Once you go over that, it's too many words. You're not going to have, you don't have space to put really big images in it, right? That look big. So if you, if you, I don't know, if you look at some of these, 
books, you know, um, you know, when you have really nice big double page spreads with just a little bit of text on it, it looks very expansive, right? Um, and so you get a lot out of it. Um, even though it's a small form factor, you know, that's really impressive looking. Right. And it and and people really love that. So even with small size, you can get, you know, big rewards and big payoffs in terms of layout um, and everything. You just have to know how to do it. And so part of what we're doing is is we're constantly pushing that. And and we've I found so I look at issues and I'm like, oh, that issue had a really good balance in terms of visual and word count, right? I thought it felt balanced. It felt like I got some good art in there but I also got some really good meaty articles. And um, and so that's where it sits. 14 to 16,000 words gets me about 60 pages of content, um, which is two color, which really means it's four color because you're paying for color when you're paying for color. Yes. Um, so, you know, so we try and use color. Everybody who is just listening to this, you've totally missed all the examples that I'm giving Jeff. <laughs> But because uh, I actually have a stack of smoking worms here because I was doing video uh, overviews of them the other day and um, something I'm behind on, which is, you know, trying to get uh, a repository of videos out there for people who want to investigate them without before they buy them and, you know, kind of get my take on them across. Yeah, so, um, I, I don't um, know if it's really helped my Kickstarters, but I just do a, like a flip through for the Kickstarters and at least everybody knows like what they're getting. Yep. Well, so I take those and spend 16, 15 to 20 to 30 minutes on them and really go through them. But what I'm doing is I kind of think of it is um, like a director's cut or a behind the scenes, like, like, you know, MST, MSTK 3000 or whatever, or, you know, the, 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 the director voiceover. And so when I'm talking about the book, I'm telling you what the article is, but I'm also mentioning who the artist is and, oh, we had a good time working with this artist or you're, you're more like the DVD commentary. Yeah. And so, so there's, yeah, there's a DVD commentary in there that often talks about the production process that is irrelevant to most people, but, um, but there are people who definitely appreciate knowing some of those little quirky things. Right. So, yeah. And I think, for me, and I don't know, and I, I don't go, I try and keep my much more limited because I, I don't think I want to have people's attentions that long for just a flip throughout a Kickstarter. Um, but I think oh, what you're doing makes more sense. It's called RPG rambling. Yeah. <laughs> I try, I, I, yes, I, I try and, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, in proper dosage, but, uh, but I think what you're doing is absolutely smart because I think it's to me what you're doing, I think you're, it's gonna sound kind of weird. I think you are um what's wrong? You're repurposing your material. So yeah. you are really not doing a flip through. You are creating a series of videos of that's something different than what the actual content is. And I think that is definitely different than what I'm looking for for what I'm doing, but for what you're doing as standalone videos i think there's there's probably a lot of uh there could be a lot of value in that for engaging people in your content yeah and i you know and the reason i do them that way is because my favorite part of any literature or movie or anything that i ever deal with is the is the rare conversation about the product 
that has the little behind the scenes photographs on how they like made R2D2 or what the puppets look like in, you know, a Jim Henson production or something like I can distinctly remember reading the Cinefax on 2010, right? And thinking it just blew my mind. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just insane. So I enjoyed podcast. One was uh, I was there too, which he just would interview people who were seconds or I call them seconds, like backup actors in different movies. Oh, extras. Movie. Yeah. And then oh, uh, there's yeah. a, and there's another one I'm listening to. It's called uh, how, uh, what went wrong. They just talk about struggles that yeah. people went through. And I, I find a lot of times that more fascinating than the movie itself. Like the struggles of getting from A to B and knowing how people did it, not just hardship, but like, Things aren't always a linear path. You think some guy writes, types up a thing, script, movie gets made, it's done. It's like, there's a lot more to it than that. No, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So so those are the things that I find enrich the story of the product, right? To know those behind the scenes. And since, since very few people talk to me about that part, um, I just decided to produce my own. Yeah, and I think it also, to me, it really does, I don't want to say brands are quite the right word, but it really does I help, help engage people in, in you know, the blind visionary productions. It's, it's yeah. so there's, and I think people do enjoy those. You know, oh, obviously with RPG ramblings, people enjoy apparently uh, the rambling. So I think uh, if, there are people out there for content. So I think you're right. If it's underserved and it also provides it's not directly meant to advertise your product, but it is meant to advertise your product. And it, it serves more than just a blatant advertisement. Right. Yes. No, I totally agree. I'm just checking something. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and so, so there is, there is a, a part of that, especially since kind of maybe part of the message that I'm trying to get across is that a lot of what we do is handmade. And a lot of what we do is made with old equipment that I refurbish and, and it's part of the craft process that I really enjoy. And um, and so it's fun to share that stuff with people like, oh, you know, we did this and I had to renovate this product in order or this device in order to make this happen. And um, and so there's some good stories in there, you know. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. even just the, the fact that you're using revenues from uh, or your, your profits from your uh, projects to fund the purchasing of equipment. Uh, to to produce things by hand uh, and being able to do things on your own is a way that I think people find interesting. Um, uh, yeah. Because that's different. It's different than the rest of us. Send a file to mix them. Get, three weeks later, we get books. Okay. Well, and I still send files to mix them. <laughs> this is a mix them publication, right? Right. So this, this issue six, I you know, the previous issue six was the actual risographic version and that was printed by somebody else. But this is a mix one, but I left the page blank and I handmade a, a sleeve and I and I printed these little inserts myself and uh, and everything. And I just glued them straight into the book. And so part of it is understanding what the limitation I have right now is, okay, I don't have an offset printing press or I don't have a risographic printing machine. And so I'm not doing a huge amount of printing on my own. Although, you know, I printed this. Right. This is the uh, this is actually the character sheet for the Soul Eater uh, class. Oh, nice! In in issue uh, issue seven and um, no issue six. 
and so you know i had i had an artist do the art and you know this is this is printed on that on a canon uh, image pro graph 1000 similar to that epson you've got in your back corner right and so yeah. it was like you know looking at invest i'm still investigating printing techniques because that's like the last step in independence but you know i'm, I'm trying to figure out is it worth going and getting a vintage offset press or is it you know or do i need to get a letter press or do i just need to get a couple of image grow pro graphics and be and have a print farm you know because they're slow as you know you know but they can do a lot um is there you know what what am i trying to produce and yeah then you start it, and it's even the um you know, then you start getting issues like humidity and things like that. And you're going to have to probably start worrying more about climate control to make sure that, you know, everything works right. Yes. At least consistent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, I think that's for you part of winning. Yeah. Oh, it is right. This needs to be, um, you know, this is, this is my, this is my next career. Um, I don't see it as uh, as a hobby anymore. It started as a hobby, but um, but you know, when I moved out of academia, this became the thing I was going to do. And so, part of the winning is the enjoyment I get from working with my hands and making things. That's that's why I built a house, right? I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have built a house or rebuilt a house if I hadn't had some kind of enjoyment in climbing around in the rafters. And thinking about minute details that would improve airflow through them and stuff, right? Uh, which took me an entire year uh, with two other guys. Every weekend, like 15, 20 hours a weekend, we spent six, eight months in my rafters thinking about that stuff. So you wouldn't do that if you didn't go, you know, if you didn't have a, if you didn't enjoy working with your hands. If, if you don't like production, you shouldn't try it. <laughs> Right. Or should you definitely shouldn't commit to it before you've tried it. Um, you know, uh, so yeah. Um, and it's the same thing with with people who ship stuff, right? So you rely on World of Game Design to do your shipping and and gosh bless them, they do that for people and they take a cut, and I totally get that, and that's perfectly acceptable. Um, I ship all my stuff myself. Why? Because I at the end of the day, I get I don't want to be mad at someone for having made a mistake and screwed up an expensive order. Oh, but if I it's just, me that screws up the expensive order, I can be angry at myself all the time. And I find that acceptable. What I, what I know is, you know, they, they are set up for doing it and yeah, they have a system for doing it. And I also know my personality. I am a, I am a very, I don't know if mercurial is the right word, but I am definitely a, um, I'm not a systematic person. Details kill me. Uh, and that's, and I've, I've double, in fact, this is his last Kickstarter. I actually double shipped uh, to people. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so just how I remember that this brick costs 58 cents. Yeah. Right. I mean, those details stick in my brain and I just can recall them. And so, you know, you know, and I have the computer that helps me because I keep, we keep meticulous notes in Excel spreadsheets of who we've shipped to and when we've shipped them and here are all the tracking numbers and, and everything. So that if somebody asks where I, I had a, I had a someone who out of the blue from a Kickstarter that I finished two years ago, asked me, when did this ship and when did it arrive at my house? And I was able to tell them that. 
So well, uh, well, the nice thing for me is the overseas orders I do with Lulu. It sends me an email. Yeah, um, I have them go to a file, uh, a folder uh, on Gmail, and I can search it. Yep, I'm I'm good about setting up systems for that, but just typing in an address every single time or copying and pasting. Um, oh, that eventually. would drive me nuts. That's why we have spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but also spreadsheets I found because I am also I love spreadsheets and I'm I'm not a macro person, but as far as formulas and setting up complex spreadsheets, I love it. But you can do so much damage so quickly with a spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not even know it. Yeah. So, so, um, so those, those, those are the, those are the projects I'm working on. Um, the interesting thing about the camp Krampus comes to cost butter home for anybody who's interested is, um, in the previous smoking worms, we tried a command view layout, which is everything that you need is on a page. How do you balance that in a small product? Uh, one of the ways you balance it is by introducing a new form. Well, reintroducing a form of grammar that was used in the 12th century called manicules. I use them extensively. Um, they're little finger pointing devices, and if you if you happen to have any of my previous products, you will you will find them all over the place, and they yeah. the page number or the area that is important for that product, and um, or you know that references it, so it connects things together. So you so as a judge, it's a call out. Oh, this is something that was on another page that I may need to think about, but it's but you need that design visual cue to click your recognition, um, you know, and it's better than bolding because you bold for other reasons. So there's a whole series of design thought that goes into that layout. Art, player facing versus judge facing, the cards are one way to get at that. Um, you know, there is, there in these projects, there are no single pieces of art that are produced um, that are that are not intended for a specific audience. So, Maps are intended for judges. Adversary cards are intended for players and things like this. And, and there's no like art that's hidden in the book that players can't see, right? Um, it's intended to be seen. Um, the thing that I hate about role-playing games, everybody does it, uh, adventures is when the cover art spoils what the, the you know, what the, what the module's about. I don't like that, which is why I have non-spoiler covers. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I try and make them as as plain as as they can. If you look at the Krampus comes to cost both home, there's just a there's this Krampus's face in amongst a standard format that is designed to stand out from most books because they're so starkly white and different. Um, and then and then you actually got to play test with me scrap metal for Earth Crawl when we were at Gamehole Con. And the thing that you uh, that we that I introduced there that will also be in Krampus comes to cost Boater home is sensory cue cards. And this is a way to re in, in a limited form factor space is a big deal. Uh, one of the things that you always have in in descriptions of printed products is something the judge needs to read or paraphrase to the players uh, a description usually right we call it box text if yeah. you have and everything and. You know, we like I can remember playing in the RPGA and box text was sacrosanct. If you interrupted box text, you would get in trouble. And if you know you nobody could act before the box text was finished and stuff like this. But box text could go on for geez. I mean, sometimes it was a page long, right? right? Paragraphs. And you know what happens is when 
when you stand up, and unless it's a, a poem, right, I stand up and, and, and talk to you guys and recite something to you, by the third or fourth line, you've lost it. It's hard to keep all those little details that are important. And then the judge is like, hey, I told you about that. That was in the box text. And you're like, well, I don't remember the box text. And so one solution to that is to pull things out of the box text and give it to them in cards and, and, and make that more immersive and interactive is the goal. And so the goal with sensory cue cards is I give a short description. And then in Dungeon Crawl Classics, we have a luck check, but there's many other systems that have similar things. And, um, you know, you could do a luck check or a perception check or something like that. And then if the people make their luck check, they get to pick a card. It's, you know, like literally they're randomized. So you never know who's getting what. And those cards represent pieces of information that could be true things. They're things that you really hear or see or, or taste or feel. Or they could be, you know, things like, oh, I'm preoccupied. My suit's really itchy and I'm not really paying much attention. Or they could be red herrings. Uh, they could be any numerous thing, right? And sometimes they require dice rolls for you to like make a luck save or a, a will save or something like this um, and, and everything. So, but you read something out to people, then they get to process a little bit of additional information, which means they're connecting it back to your, what you just said. And then they get to interact with each other if they choose so. And so the goal of that product uh, is to draw players into the narrative make them a part of revealing that narrative so they feel like you know they they feel like they're important and they and, and mentally they're engaged and then also to be able to produce emotions in them so some of them not the ones that we did in scrap metal per se but some of them I've written for other adventures are meant to be they're meant to ratchet up tension or they're meant to be kind of scary or they're meant to be you know um I did a play test with one and um, <clears throat> it's called House of the Petrified Frog. I, it's a product I've been working on and will finally hopefully come out next year. And I had someone play test it kind of de novo. They didn't know anything about it, but it had these sensory cue cards. I sent them off to them and they had a physical deck they could play with their friends with. And he came back and he said, well, they weren't earth shattering, but everybody got really tense because it, it like it kept them on their toes. They weren't sure what they were experiencing. And it, and it really... It was like a, it was like um, you know, the early stages of a horror uh, of a horror movie where like oh something drops and you can't tell what it is or maybe a something went past your vision in the corner of your eye you saw a shadow. He's like all these little things kept happening and it really kept us on our toes. He's like so I don't know if that's a success or not. I'm like that's exactly a success because that's exactly what I was hoping to produce, right? And scrap metal had a different feel. It was a, it's a post apocalyptic future and you know. Thing, you know it's supposed to be about the drudgery of that but um yeah that's so that's the sensory cue card system is a new system we're using it will be this will be the first time i've got a published product with it and i think it i think it'll change the way people view those encounters so i don't know what was your what was your experience jeff was it at all was it in any way useful for you when you sat at the table or was the the sensory cards yeah and be be honest if you thought they were cumbersome i'm i'm sure there are people out there who think that i th i think the problem is i hate to say this but i think i probably need to play it again thinking along along those lines cuz i wasn't yeah. getting those i wasn't thinking them as being those and so i wasn't in a headspace to really analyze that but what what was your experience with them was it positive do you think 
Yeah, it was. Um, let me try to think. Because some of them were encounters, it? right? Uh, were those the ones that were also encounters as well? They could or be those encounters, were... right? But they were, as you went through regions, you made checks and I handed you cards with the information. on. And them. so the information could be sensory or could be an encounter. Yep. It could be an encounter, right? So okay. sometimes they were like sinkholes open below you when you fall through because it's a DCC funnel and random stuff happens. Yeah. So I think the I think the randomization was good. I I think what we mentioned before, I, I think it was I was trying to think about what things were were centric because I think there was some something to do with uh, like a sweet smell or yep. things like that. But was it tied to a particular, and it was tied to a particular area, right? It was, yes. Yeah, they were they were area sensory cards. So this was, as you're going through this area, and, and, and if people are telling each other what they're experiencing, each area kind of feels a little different. So I would say that I think, this is kind of weird. I almost wonder is if whatever the sensory cards are, People can't speak what th those are, but they have to role play it in a way. Because we all kind of shared new. Yeah. It'd be kind of interesting is like, you know, you smell something off. Maybe you don't everybody share at the end. But if if somebody would just say, I don't really want to go there. There's something about that. Just It just doesn't smell right. I yeah. think that would probably be more because I think we end up just sharing the information where I think before if people don't can't share it directly or at all like do not share this i think that probably could lead to more um maybe more tension with knowledge it could and and so it depends on what you're trying to get across with those sensory cue cards like i said you can what it allows you to do is kind of as a writer force the interaction between the judge and the players right and 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 kind of put a little bit of umbrage on the players in terms of crafting a narrative and it is emergent because it's random, because you never know which cards are going to get pulled in what order. Yeah. And because it's on a die roll, you never know how many people are going to actually succeed at that die roll. You kind of Yeah, and I think I think as a system, so as a system for generating random events, I think it worked out really decent. But as far as like the, the senses becoming part of the actual experience, I'm not sure if it did. Yeah. And that may be con play. Right. So there's a difference between con play and home play. It uh, very well could be. Yeah. So, but anyway, that's, that's what that product looks like is, is it'll, it'll, it will for the first time get out there in the world. I mean, you never know until you produce these things, how they're going to actually play out. And well, you... and I think that was interesting because you wrote this thing. Uh, you wrote all your tables, you wrote all these cards and then you ran, was it four games? Three games there, one game at Gen Con. Yeah, so yeah. I've run it about five times now. So then what happens is you have the 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 thing in your head, it meets reality. Yeah. And then, you know, we all like to think we, we're, we're clever enough to write things that cover all the bases. But then really when it hits the reality, it's like it's it's a different story. So then you're able to get feedback from yeah. people. Yeah, and that's exactly why we do playtesting, right? So the very yeah. first time I ran Earth, uh, ran scrap metal, we um, we got out there, and uh, and I was with my group. It was with my home group on a Saturday, and uh, we got they got into a region. They were doing some stuff, and I immediately said, "Stop! I understand that I have totally written this wrong." 
right? I mean, just this, I now understand where this is not working and it's a fundamental thing. There's no point in going on. I just need to go back and rewrite the guts of this, the mechanic on how we're going to do this and everything. I, I had made something that looked good on paper, but it was way too complicated for execution. And, uh, and I was the one executing it and I was the one that had written it. And I was like, no, this is not <laughs> the way to do this. And so, but I stopped, I got their feedback. We, I made notes immediately, went back and completely rewrote that, that part. Didn't need to rewrite too much of the, of the actual little area notes because it was the central mechanic that was running the, the, the adventure that was the problem. And, um, and so, you know, now I've had four play tests under that and it's just, it's so much smoother. So. So I guess my question for you more so is, because I've not written anything that needed play testing um, so far. Um, so I guess the question is, I mean, we, your approach to that, I mean, and your, in the, the methodology you use. So like, and that's what I'm interested in. Okay. So you have a product, you wrote it and you're like, I need to play test this. It's, an, it's, it's not as established adventure, it's more sandbox and it's going to randomly generate, you know, what we're dealing with. Um, like, I guess, how'd you, how'd you prepare to go to a play test with this product? Um, well, other than the physical production of the things I needed, because these are physical props right. were in person, um, there really wasn't much. Right. I just listed it at a con and said, I, I'm doing this. And then I advertised it a little bit when I noticed it. So wasn't did me. you already like in your mind, come up with like certain things that were key to, to test or like some things you're more comfortable with, or were you. Oh, there's always, so there's, there's, there's my interpretation of what's happening. And then there's the player's interpretation of what's happening. And from the player perspective, I only want to know two things. Um, what do they enjoy? And what do they not enjoy? Right? And so really, I don't want to get any more complicated than that because the truth is, especially in like scrap metal where there were five areas you could go, it was an open thing. You could go to any of those five areas, although what you had to get through one to get to the last, to the fifth one. Um, you could do this in any order you wanted to and it wasn't going to be a big problem. Um, it was designed to allow people to, every single one of those that I ran have been different. People have always gone to different areas and encountered things in different orders. And every single one of them is unique in and of themselves. So to me, from my perspective, first of all, that's a success, right? Something is not driving people to one place and one place only. Right. Um, if, if I had built a whole bunch of variation and then nobody was using it, they were just doing one thing and always doing the same thing, that would tell me that something is driving that decision process because that looks more like direction than the random setting that I have put together where people have a choice and it just doesn't matter which way you go, to be honest. Yeah, if you put a spider, people won't go there no matter what. That's right. And so, <laughs> yeah. And, and and as a matter of fact, you know, that's, that's one of the cards, right? I, yeah. It, you got that you got that one where it was like there were big giant spider webs high up in trees and nobody goes through the area with yeah. the spider webs even though i don't have a single spider in the game there's just spider webs up there that's yeah. what it looks like and nobody goes through that area it's yeah. an immediate dead end they just <laughs> nobody's like let's go mess with the spiders right and they don't do that and so one thing i do know is 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 that that card is very good at having people avoid that area of the map 
Um, so, um, so yeah, so from my perspective, I'm looking for certain things. Do I think um, playing out the cards was cumbersome? Do I think it took a lot of time? Do I think it took too much time? Did it add to player interaction? Did the players feel like they were being drip-fed information, or do they feel like there was they were actually getting things uh, and things were going well? Um, it wasn't at your table, but at several other tables, I've had about about two hours into it, I've had people go, "This is so different than what I normally have experience at a con. This is just really awesome. I love these cards." So when I've got people who are volunteering in the middle of a game that they really like the mechanic that tells me that at least for a subpopulation, this is really hitting home. Yeah. Right. Um, and stuff like that. So I'm constantly thinking about all the things that kind of, I'm evaluating the game progression as a judge, right? Is this running well? Is it running smoothly? Am I hitting problems where I don't know how to solve them um, or where I don't give advice on how to solve them? Right. And maybe that's the problem It's I'm hitting the same problem again and again. I should probably give advice on how to deal with that. Um, excuse me. And so I'm asking myself a whole bunch of questions. The only thing I ask from players is what did you like? What did you not like? What were the things that got in the way of you having fun? What were the things that you thought, you know? Yeah. Fun? I've heard people say you don't, you should never ask get from players how to fix a problem. They just need to no. state there is a problem. No, or they no. feel there's a problem. Right. And because the moment they start thinking about how to fix a problem, um, they're prejudicing their understanding of the, of the moment. And they, what they don't know is whether that is an atypical playtest or a typical playtest. Right. Is this something that happened in the playtest where I flubbed it at the beginning and maybe I know I flubbed it and that totally colors the way people see it? Yeah. Or is, is there something else going on? And so. Well, so I have a favorite mechanic in all the world and mm -hmm. I could apply it to any game. And for me just to say, you know what, I think what you need to do is apply this mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, wait a minute. That's <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you for your advice, but uh, no, <laughs> no, that's not how we're going to do it. So, yep. Yeah. So, so that's, that's kind of how, Playtesting works for me. Uh, it's different than other people, I'm sure, but that's kind of how I approach it. Yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting because you're doing a, I mean, because you're doing a nonlinear and uh, random, I'm sure that creates, a, I mean, really a dungeon is so, I don't say so simple, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a constrained point to point. Yes. Um, so... Uh, that that simplifies so much because it limits decisions that people can make or choices that people can make um but we're out in the middle yeah huh i said realistically it does right M few people decide they're going to enter the castle by knocking down the wall right exactly right? most people just use the door <laughs> exactly <laughs> and so. so but i think you know your 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 issue is that you the system wasn't just mechanical I mean, mechanical, but just like it wasn't just like, hey, I'm going to add so I create a new fighter class. Let's try them out. It was actually saying, uh, if this random generation doesn't work, at least most of the time, like 90% of the time or 95% of the time, I've just created a, a problem that nobody's gonna, it's, it's gonna be a, a big, very big problem because yeah. you're gonna need a pretty, 
reasonable success rate for people to be able to play it and have it be usable. Yeah. It's 75% of the time it's usable. That's not good. No, no. And so, and so what I took out of that play test, that series of play tests was, Oh, I think it was Saturday afternoon after I'd finished the last one, which was you were, you were in that one is we went out and we had lunch and, um, and I had two friends who'd come to the convention with me and we sat there and, and they had sat in on play tests earlier, the very early play test that the one that I said, ah, this is just not working. Let's ditch this. And let me ask some questions about other things. Um, they had said on that. And so we sit, we sat there and I made, I made a list of, um, in my notebook, I made a list of things that I needed to change. And then I executed those changes and I'm extremely happy with them now. I, I, I was just impressed that you've got groupies. And yeah, they may be small in number, but they'll travel states they'll travel just to come state. play your game. Yeah, well, you know how it is. I mean, you know, these are the guys that I played with in high school. So, you know, they were they were looking to get out and, and get away from home for a little while. And and uh, and they had never been to a game convention before ever. And uh, and so, uh, you know, yeah, now we're planning um, we're planning a trip to England next year. So they're going to go they're going to go with they've never been to England. And I've been there many times. And, um, and so we're going to go to England and, and I'm going to do a whole bunch of fact finding for future projects. And, uh, and we're going to go do things together. Maybe you need to, maybe you need to start a business. You'd be like a travel guide. Travel guide. That's right. Yeah, you'd be traveling with, with Trevor and then traveling you'll, with, and you'll set the itinerary and do yep. some things and charge everybody an extra thousand dollars just for, for, uh, you to... for all of my time. Yes, yeah. exactly. Maybe that, maybe that's my true calling. It's not really zines. It's uh, it's travel. That would be there, fun. There's a manager. His name was um, his name was Ruben. And it's from Mexico, and uh, as far as the manager go, he was he was so so. But uh, but but my goodness, uh, I would pay money for him to take me to New York or New York City. I mean, he was just yeah. that kind of personality. Like yeah. you know, a, like a lot of gusto, very vibrant, uh, and it's like you know, so it's like maybe that'd be your calling. Uh, you maybe. Know, uh, <laughs> that would be cool so yeah so that's what i've been up to jeff it's actually been a, it's been a long post-mortem since game Holcon, making corrections to things getting products ready uh getting this kickstarter ready and um outlining goals for next year so yeah yeah it's it's not easy um especially when you're doing a lot of that uh and also yourself too so um fortunately for me so far most of the projects have i've gotten to being able to get a lot of people to write and then being able to publish so that's that's easy but there's some things coming out that's going to take a little bit more uh thought yeah <laughs> it's like okay so in my myself i'm gonna be looking at play testing and uh and so forth so we'll see how that goes well you know i play tested petra house the petrified frog for two years before i was happy with it um, did it did it hit the sweet spot I was looking for? That it was navigable, but it was also dangerous. That was the goal for that for that uh, sandbox set piece. And it's going to launch a whole new series of products, a product line for me that'll be different from the smoking worm. It'll be a separate item called sandbox set pieces. And then um, <clears throat> the second one in that line will be Earth Crawl. And so that is like the ultimate of sandbox set pieces. It's it is a setting with a whole bunch of, uh, of additional adventures and stuff. So it looks like it's gonna come out with um, two big adventures, one of them being a scrap metal 
The other one being one called Human Bait, I think is what the name is right now. And um, and then the uh, and then it's going to have an anthology as well. And they're all going to be box sets because they need to. Once you get into that many sensory cue cards and stuff, it's better just to have a box to throw everything in. So so suddenly that becomes interesting in logistics. Uh, I guess the question is, could those sensory cue cards um, be usable for other people's, for other games, for GM? Possibly. I don't know. You know, the the adversary cards certainly are, right? Because you can just pull one out and take it to another setting or whatever you want to do with it. Um, I think the sensory cue cards are pretty tied to what I wrote, but I mean, I'm sure I am coming out with a smoking worm article where I talk about I actually got Joseph Goodman's permission to take one of his most famous modules, Sailors in the Starless Sea, and there's an opening sequence where the peasants are marching up to the ruined castle and they're, and they're attacked by these vine creatures. And the box text on that's actually pretty long. And I'm going to take that box text and quote it. And then I'm going to take it apart and show people this is, you know, this is how I would take this bigger piece of box text and make my own set of sensory cue cards off of it as a kind of a how-to go ahead and take apart existing modules and rewrite them if you want to integrate sensory cue cards. Well, but the thing is, is it, it was tied to yours, but you still have, uh, like, it's tied to creatures, like, and it's tied to other things. I mean, and you could yeah. tie it to, because the locations that you had were, they, they were, I don't want to say thematic, but you know, like an area where there are certain types of ruins, another place with certain types of ruins, there's a crater. Yep. I mean, you could probably do a little booklet and a stack of cards. I don't know. Maybe that would just go for just a normal maybe. somebody running a mutant crawl classics. Yeah. Maybe you could lift a crater and say, I'm just going to lift this part of this piece. Yes. It's got the theme cards, to, or the sensory cue cards to go with it. Yeah. So I guess, I guess they are usable. I mean, you can, I, I've taken apart adventures before and said, I'm just going to use this. I just want to use the castle, right? Yeah. The rest of it. So yeah, in that way, there are. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I guess we're in, in uh, two hours, aren't we? We are exactly at two hours. Wow. We're pretty close to it. We haven't lost the knack for a ramble. <laughs> See, it all comes back. It all comes back. <clears throat> yep. So anyway, you got a Kickstarter that's going to be going on. I think you're only doing it for what two weeks, three, three weeks, weeks, three weeks. We're, we're so you got two more weekend. It's got two more weeks. Yeah, yep. it's so. going strong. It's already funded. It's chugging along. Yep. I'm looking forward to seeing where we get to, and uh, and getting these. These will be the last two products that I work on for the year. So uh, well, that I publish. I, and I don't think they'll get out by the year, but they will get to printing or something. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I actually, one of the things that I've had to do is, is learn to push my deadlines out further than I really, when, when my first gut feeling is Trevor, you could do this by law. Then I'm like, no, Trevor can't do it by blah. Trevor needs two or three more months than blah. And so for and you, it's so, like plumbing. You yeah. think that plumbing I should get it done in three or four hours and then three or four <laughs> trips to the hardware store later. Right. You finally got all the stuff you need. Yep. That's exactly right. And so, so this time I set this Kickstarter is set to be fulfilled by March of next year. 
uh, simply because I said, I can have it done by January. And then I was like, I should add two more months because I can never get it done by the date that I say I'm going to get it done by. You know, my feeling is, is that I give copious updates and some of my Kickstarters have 30 and 40 updates on them. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have a, even a little graphic. It's not really a graphic, but it's a very specific leaderboard that tells people, here's what we're going to produce and here's where we're at on that production. No, I think as long as you communicate, it's good. And there's a, there's a fellow, there's a peer of ours that was called out for being one of the people that doesn't communicate. Uh -huh. And then when I looked through their Kickstarter, I couldn't see what the person was having a big to do about. Like, I didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Unless the guy thought, because he, he stated like the, the Kickstarter is not going to be fulfilled in, for like nine months. Yeah. You know, like what, is he expecting this guy to update every two weeks for yeah. nine months? Like, I, I try, I try every month. I, I think a once a month thing because there's usually one or two months in there where it's like nothing's really happening. I mean, you know, we're we're waiting for art to come in. Art comes in, we evaluate it, we put it in layout, make sure it looks good. We ask for a tweak. I mean, what does that mean? And uh, to somebody, most people don't even realize what we're doing. And so, yeah. so I do sometimes put in little tutorials. Hey, here's the initial sketch, and here's our second sketch, and you notice we changed some things, and here's what it finally looked like, and then here's what it looks like with color. Right. And so so they can see that and kind of give that background. So sometimes I'm really just doing behind the behind the scenes updates. You know, this is the meat of it. But here's your update. You know, maybe one or two things on that leaderboard have changed. Yeah. And I think as people know up front, I think you've also established yourself after this these many Kickstarters that, you know, I try. Pe people trust. Yeah. I just I don't have the I don't have the, the I think for me to be going that far out would absolutely stress me out to the max. I couldn't do you know, it. What stresses me out is um, what stresses me out is when we hit in, when we miss internal deadlines that I don't announce. Actually, the thing that stresses me out the most is, oh, I needed that by this. And, you know, because when when I, when I'm getting things back from people, you know, I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day, one of my authors who's worked with me, uh, and I was like, um, it's like you need to understand that your part in the production is this. I'm not saying it's insignificant; it's absolutely vital because the written piece is what we're trying to communicate, after all. But it's the production pipeline for a product. Yes. Takes, takes over a year right i i began working on issue nine over a year ago most wow. of it was written by december of last year right and i'm just now getting it out in a kickstarter um so especially when you've got a a numbered series of things what i've discovered is is you you're, you're constantly like i said shuffling things and putting them in a, in a pipeline and then they're sitting there and i'm like but the problem is is like my editor I can only get my editor's time once every quarter, right? I can get 30,000 words or 60,000 words every quarter. And so she works four months out. And so, you know, when she finishes a project of mine, I'm like, okay, next project, I'm going to have 40,000 words for you in four months. How's April? And she's like, oh, April's good or April's bad. We need to push it to May, right? And I'm like, so these things have to happen well in advance because I can't go to layout until my editor's done. <laughs> 
you know, and so so I have to have the writing finished and then the writing is going to sit there and maybe I do little tweaks to it, but it's substantively done. And then and then it goes to edits and then and then those things, you know, there's that's a that's a whole process we've built. You know, I've gotten really good at the logistics of putting together products and and there and it takes me a year minimum of a year to put together a smoking one. So. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that's that's quite astounding. Well, when, especially when you think I'm out also working in entire new product lines and everything, and I, I don't imagine this is any different than like Levi Combs does, right? Um, you know, um, so so when, you know, but yeah, that's just how it is. I kind of really enjoy it because I like seeing all these projects at different stages and then when they get done and I'm like, oh, this is great. And then it's it's a weird letdown when I get the physical thing in my hand most of the time and I'm like, oh, it's amazing. And then I'm, the next day I don't have that, right? Because <laughs> yeah. you only get that feeling once. And uh, and then you're like, okay, well, it's done. And I'm moving on to the next thing. My my focus, actually, many months ago, my focus was on the product after this. This is just, it. In, but but then the, then the moment comes when I get to pull it off my shelf and use it in my own game. And that's a really great feeling. So, oh, yeah. 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 Okay, so I just rambled a bit for you. Well, that's okay. You're the fine craftsman. I'm the. Uh, I'm the. <laughs> well, yeah, you craft good products. You know, I thought that Scoundrels was really nicely done. Those I I can usually crank out in about three months. Yeah. And same with Gary's appendix. But then I got well. It took me a while to get the the layout that figured out. Once I got that snapped into place, uh, the rest went well. But I've also had somebody writing for me, so. The arts, I keep the art limited because it costs so much money. It um, does. It does. <laughs> oh my gosh. Art is not cheap. Anybody who tells you otherwise, I don't know how they do it. I've, yeah. So, uh, so, and, and I've got Adam Kovac wrote issue two and yeah. he, he does such a smash up job, but, um, but he's able to devote. So, and even to Gary's appendix, I usually can go from, from, from a call to writing to, to, um, kickstarter uh, with a proof copy in hand in about three months as well wow i wish i could do that well yeah, it's a lot less stress but i but also don't have the um i don't have the production values and i don't have the cards and the the envelopes and um so that that's 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 what i'm giving up is the the boutique the what do they call that um bespoke. boutique bespoke yeah so. And, you know, and you have to remember, my wife asked me, why is it that you spend hours gluing things? And I'm like, well, first of all, um, I do spend hours gluing things. Let's just admit it. But I'm always listening to a book on tape and I'm thinking about products while I do it. And so, and by the way, if you're not good at gluing things, you could not be a bookbinder because bookbinding is 90% glue, Right. Yeah. And manipulating glue and dealing with dried glue and all this stuff, right? And so, um, you know, so it's good practice. And, I, and I'm like, it's good practice. Doing, sitting down and saying, I need to do 400 of that. And I know that each one takes me 30 seconds. So I'm going to work in batches and everything and press them and do all this stuff, right? That's, that's good practice. Or maybe so. it's just ADD and you're able to hyper-focus on something. No, I don't think it's it at all because I'm always thinking about other things while I'm doing it. Uh, I have always been able to do product. I love working with my hands. But I would say is this is, but here's what I would say. That's why I may think 
I think walking in the woods, listening to podcasts, my head's my head goes way off into outer space. But there's the physical activity. I still think you're probably getting into a Zen focusing state by doing the repetitious tasks. And it, it somehow it's it it relaxes you and allows your mind to do other things. But, oh, it definitely relaxes. But definitely- but to, to do to 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 glue in piece after piece after piece after piece after piece, it's more than practice, Trevor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying I, there is something about this activity that just triggers the 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 the, the whatever those uh, receptors are. It gives you the the boost. Uh, yep. There's something that you find. It, it feels like child, it feels like childhood. When I was in tenth grade, I took a design, a graphic design class, and we had a printing press, and we had a dark room, and we had, um, you know, we did T-shirts, and we did we ha- we had a Mac too, right? And we did all of these things, right? And and so it takes me right back to being fifteen and working on stuff, and yet it's still, I wouldn't say it's super lucrative um, at the at the phase that I'm in. But um, but it is it you know it does pay for the equipment and I've basically paid for the equipment I need right now and and now it's going to start adding money to to paying bills and stuff I think in the new year. But you also love the activity. And I love the activity, and it keeps me busy and it's varied. Every day is different, right? Some days I'm working on packing. Some days I'm working on production. Some days I'm writing. Some days I'm doing research. Some days I'm refurbishing equipment. Some days I do all of that. And so, uh, so I think variety is the spice of life in many respects, you know, and being able to do all that stuff is good, but I think you're right. I think we are hitting the, we're hitting the time space continuum and we probably need to clip this and, uh, we can come back to it sometime in the soon. I'm sure we will. So anyway, thanks again, Trevor, and everybody needs to go see the Kickstarter. Yep. And if, and Check if, it out, guys. if you're hearing this months later, um, there'll be, uh, Tell the Smoking Worm uh, 10 coming out. So it will be. It will be. And it's going to be great because I've already got it written and <laughs> I know what's in it. <laughs> so um, actually, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to 10. It's a, it's going to be a cool issue. So I believe it. So anyway, th- thanks again for coming on, Trevor. Not a problem, Jeff. Anytime.